All right, let's get started. If you have a Bible, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're in this letter to the Corinthian church written by Paul some 2,000 years ago. And uh, we are in chapter 5, verse 1. Let me read this for you. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So good morning. <laughs> like if you're new to this place, um, this, is, uh, this is definitely one of those subjects. If it's PG-13, really today it's PG-13, and then for about six weeks after next week, it's PG-13. Um, so if you're new and you brought your stepmom, this is like a definite, like, fun one, which would be weird, but not to make it even more awkward. Here's the thing, though. Um, here's, we go through letters verse by verse, and sometimes, you know, for the majority of our teaching, we kind of go through things at a chunk. And so um, the good news, the thing that's really important about that is that it forces us to wrestle with things that are happening in the text, right? Like, we can't avoid it. Um, so we could have just jumped ahead, but then some of you would have been like, wait a second, you missed something. So we're jumping into this. I think it's really healthy to do. Um, and I think that what you'll find today is something um, a lot more life-giving than you might think um, about where we go. So what we're going to do is we're, chapter 5 here, Paul is actually weaving together three different threads from the Old Testament and one from Jesus as he begins to correct a contention he has with the church in Corinth, Okay. And uh, we're going to get into that as we, as we jump in. So uh, hang in there. It's going to make sense, but I'm going to move really fast through some really thick Old Testament things. The first one is Exodus chapter 12. And now in Exodus chapter 12, really the central event of the people of Israel is the Exodus. Now, the Exodus, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, Sunday school things and things like that, the Exodus is the people of Israel have been in the service, they've been in slavery in Egypt for a number of years, in fact, a, uh, a, few, a few hundred years, and millennia, I almost said, and, uh, and what happens is God sends Moses as this kind of figure that's going to help lead the people of Israel out of this oppression under Egypt. And one of the ways God uses um, Moses is to, is to rail against the, the Egyptian gods, like to come to, to present himself as the God set against the gods of Egypt. And so he uses 10 plagues. And upon first reading it, you think, man, God seems really cruel to the Egyptian people. What God is doing is actually showing his power over the gods of the Egyptians, uh, step by step, one by one. So different plagues mean different things depending on who the God is that God is actually trying to show them power over. Now, what we know is, is that the last plague, you know, God has heard the prayers of Israel. They want to be released from this bondage. And, and, and so he sends Moses in this last plague, this 10th plague is the angel of death. And it actually falls not just on Egyptians, but it also falls on the Israelites. Okay, so if you're familiar with this story, this unleashes something called Passover. And where we get the word Passover is what the uh, Israelites were commanded to do on this certain night was to take a firstborn uh, lamb um, uh, without blemish and, um, and, and, and take this lamb without defect and sacrifice this lamb and take the blood of this lamb and put it on the doorposts of their homes and then there was a sacred meal that they participated in with the lamb and, and other things like that. And what this was, was the blood on the door frames was actually a signal, a sign that the angel of death would see and pass over the people of Israel, each household. And so you, if you were in 
inside one of these homes, you were, as we know, covered by the blood of the Lamb. So where we get that language. Now for us in the West, it's just very, it's a very different world. Uh, we, we're not, we don't sacrifice things anymore. And, and we don't, I mean, this is, this is imagery and stuff that's very foreign to us on first reading. But this is uh, how God used this time to, to rescue his people out of Israel. So let me just read uh, Exodus chapter 12. It starts like this. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the idea behind this is, you are safe inside, you are safe under the covering, okay? And if you are outside, you're on your own. You're on your own and you are um, exposed, really, to this, this, uh, this angel of death. Now, it says in verse 14, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance, meaning keep remembering this. This is going to be a moment in time that I want you to keep remembering and celebrating. And then he says in verse 15, for seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. So, which is pretty intense. It sounds super intense, right? Passover unleashes a seven-day event for the people of Israel called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you are to rid your homes of all leaven and yeast. And uh, it's great for people who are gluten-free. It's like easy. It's like been there. And, and so, for the rest of us, it's like, it's like this purging of leaven from your home. Like the big spring deep clean, right? So, thread number one that Paul is about to weave into this teaching he's about to give the Corinthians is Passover. Thread number two, we're going to go to the next favorite place that everybody loves to go, Leviticus. Chapter 18. Now, this will all make sense as Paul starts unpacking some things we're about to read. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So what, what God is basically laying out for them is this. Don't do like the people did where you came from. Don't do like the people do where you're going. Do what I tell you to do, because I'm the Lord. I mean, there's really two reasons behind this as we unpack. If you, if you really read through Leviticus and some of these other things, uh, the first reason that's really important, when, whenever someone asks me, why should I obey? I tell them the first thing is the most important. It's, it's, it's because that's where life is found. Like, ultimately, what God is saying is, I have life for you. I have full, flourishing human life for you on offer if you obey. The second reason why, and really the most important reason why, is because he says, I am the Lord. Because I am the Lord. Period. And, and we hear that in our day and age, and we're like, oh, well, that's, that's pretty intense. That's pretty... But let's get further into this. Verse 6, he starts to lay out some, 
stipulations. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. <laughs> Apparently, that was an issue. Uh, I don't know. Verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Now, there's some interesting background here, and um, I think it's really important that, to understand that 3,000 years ago, in the desert, life expectancy was a little different than we have today. And chances are, if you were a Jewish man, if your wife passed away, you would remarry and chances were really high that you married a young Jewish woman. Pretty high. And your, uh, your desire was to continue to bear children. You were, your sustaining of your culture meant that you were continually trying to have children. Not in our day and age. We're like, let's cut it off at two or whatever. You know, they were like, let's keep going. Like, as long as everything works, plow ahead, right? Like, get more kids on the earth. I know that sounded graphic, and I, that wasn't in my notes. <laughs> um, apologize to everybody listening online, too. Anyhow, so if your wife passes away and you remarry a, a younger Jewish girl, and your son is potentially near the same age as said young Jewish girl, and you're living in this same tent. You, you, you can imagine like being a young man going, okay, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18. Like, like it's just different. The second thing is you live in an honor-shame society, meaning the most important thing about you is not you. The most important thing about you is the community and the family and the name you bear. And so if your number one thing is to honor your family, specifically your father, chances are to have sex with your stepmom was probably the most devastating thing you could do to your family's name, right? So this is all things that they're laying out that, that, that Moses is laying out from the Lord. And it says this in verse 11, if a man has sexual relations Sorry, this is Leviticus 20. We're going to skip ahead. Leviticus 20, verse 11, it says, If a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, I completely understand that hearing that raises all sorts of questions about capital punishment and fairness and things like that. As far as I know, there are 26 instances in the Old Testament in Leviticus that require capital punishment. That may seem like 26 too many to you, and I totally understand that. We're talking about a different culture. Now, keep in mind that Israel was a theocracy, and so judicial laws of crimes and punishments were woven into the fabric, not only of their society, but what they believed, okay? So it's really interesting to understand that there's a phrase that keeps popping up over and over and over again in Leviticus, and I, I promise you we're going somewhere with this. But in Leviticus, or sorry, Deuteronomy 22, and I'm not, I don't have this on the screen, but there's a series of, of commands and laws that basically says, you must purge the evil from among you. Over and over and over again. So do not have sexual relationship with your stepmom. And if you do, you will be purged. You will be pushed out. You will be put to death. So the second thread, the first thread is Passover. The second thread is purging from among them, okay? The third thread is that, that the actual purging happens to get people outside of Israel, okay? We are the products, you and I are the products of the Enlightenment. We're hyper-individualistic. And, 
And in ancient Near East times, they thought more of a community. Survival is a community thing, like, and to be together on this. And so in the scriptures, like I said earlier, your identity is connected to the community, okay? It's connected to the community first before your individuality. So your family, your relatives, your nation, you were the son of somebody. You weren't just Bob. You were the son of somebody from the tribe of somebody, on and on, right? So you were woven into this. Theologians call this corporate responsibility, meaning you had the responsibility, you bared the responsibility of being part of a corporate group, and that corporate group bared the responsibility for your sin. Does that make sense? So, Give you, a, give you a little illustration. When I was in high school, I played soccer. And, and yes, one time I ran. And, and in high school, we had this super mean coach. He was actually the son of a very famous preacher that you probably have books on your shelf about. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, he was the meanest coach I've ever had though. Anyhow. He would, I still have flashbacks, I like PTSD. In soccer, you would practice forming a wall for penalty kicks. And you would stand like this, and, and you would, right next to each other, and you couldn't move. And we had a game where somebody moved, and the ball went through that crack in the wall and scored. And he was so mad that the next day, Monday, we're sitting at practice, he makes us all take our shirts off, he lines us up, and he says, if anybody moves, if one of you moves, everybody's running. If one person moves, everybody's running. And he would just start punting the ball, just right at our bare chests, <laughs> right? And we couldn't move. Well, the first guy moved, so we ran. And then, and then the next guy, like, we get back, and we're all tired, and he's like, nobody move. Next guy moved, and then we ran. And on the run, we started to have a little corporate responsibility conversation. <laughs> nobody move, right? I mean, it was a game changer. That's the story. That's what we're getting at, too. You know the story in the Old Testament about Achan? And the people of Israel go and they, and they uh, conquer a city and they're told not to take any of the spoils of the war. And Achan does. And Achan has him hidden in his tent. And, and actually the whole nation is punished because of Achan. Now we think to ourselves, that's not fair because we're individualistic. Nobody complained when that happened. Everybody knew it was a corporate thing. And so it's something about community holiness that, that really is a part of thread three. Israel was important. Uh, they, they, they knew this, this understanding. Now, the last thread before we get into the final part here is Matthew 18. This is Jesus. So you're like, oh, we're out of the Old Testament. <laughs> Doesn't make it any easier because Jesus... He's pretty much digging the Old Testament. So uh, Jesus, fast forward several hundred years, okay? And Israel is no longer a theocracy. They're living under, under the um, oppression of Rome, okay? Now, one of the first things that Rome did was they took away the people of Israel's ability to carry out capital punishment. It was one of the first things they did. And and there's a, a lot of different reasons why they did that, but the priests and the scribes and the, the leaders of the Jewish uh, faith had to then reinterpret and reapply all of these death penalty statements from the Old Testament. And so what they did, the consensus was to take away uh, to it was to put somebody outside of the community, out of the temple, like they were barred from worshiping at the temple, they were barred from doing certain religious activity, and actually what you would do as a family is you would, you would mourn. You would go into mourning for somebody 
that you knew that was deliberately and intentionally breaking the law, like doing things that were bringing shame to the people of Israel, you would actually sit Shiva and hold a funeral for them. It's pretty intense. Now, Jesus, understanding where all this is coming from, um, understanding kind of, he steps right into this tradition, and he does not question the tradition, but he talks about how you do that. Like, how we do that, how, how our human hearts could do that without getting sideways, because we've all heard or maybe even experienced a, a group of people or a church that has misused what it means to be disciplined, okay? What it means to have someone confront you in love. And so Matthew 18 is something that has been misused over and over in, scripture, in, in, in church circles. And, and really because people get power hungry and they're, they, they, they're religiously, they're hypocrites. And so they, they use this, this passage sometime to do some real damage to people. But this is how Jesus walks through this. He says this, if your brother or sister sins, and remember, Jesus um, is the first one to use this idea of a family. And, and before, uh, before this, uh, someone said, hey, uh, where your, your brothers and, and your mother want to talk to you? And he goes, who are my brothers and mother? Remember that? And he said, those who, f- who follow the will of my father. So he believes that followers are intrinsically a family, like united in a different way than normal people. And he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Go to your brother face to face. Go to your sister face to face. Don't text them, okay? For those of you who are older, don't email, okay? Sit down. There's something about that face-to-face reaction, like you've sinned against me, and, and we need to talk about it, or, or you're doing something, and I know you're doing something that is actually going to bring shame, not only on you, but on the people of God. Let's, we need to sit down and talk, face-to-face. It says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. I mean, that's just a beautiful thing. Like, that, that would be, like, the perfect thing. Like, man, you're right. I blew it, I need to turn around, I need to fix, I need to come home. That idea of repentance, of coming home, right? Uh, Like you're right, I have sinned against you, I am so sorry, and like, what a beautiful picture, right, of being human and reconciling, and because you're gonna do that to somebody. Verse 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 22, right here. Like, bring people with you that also, like, have this same heart for this person. Like, bring them with you. Like, and what this is, is, is turning up the volume a little bit in their life. Like, oh, this is, this is a big deal. Like, you're, you're not screwing around. Like, you really are interested in me coming home. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean announcement number four, Bob, (laughs) you know? I don't know why it's always Bob in my head or Hank. Any Bobs or Hanks in here? Because I apologize. Yeah, it's not an announcement. Announcement number four, Bob is sleeping with Susie and it's bad. And he's right here. No, that's not what, I mean, what Jesus is saying is like, this is where, this is where as house churches, they would operate more of like smaller communities. This is where like, like you guys, we all need to know that Bob's in serious trouble here. And everybody needs to be a part of bringing Bob home. And this is really turning up the volume. And, and then um, it, it actually goes a little further. 
And it says this, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Ooh, right? Like tax, tax collector next Sunday, right? Isn't that next Sunday? Monday? Okay, anyhow. North Galilee was a very hyper-conservative a Jewish following the Torah place. This is where Jesus is talking. These are the kind of people that would not have associations with pagans and tax collectors based on their belief that if they did, it would keep them from experiencing all that God had promised about them occupying the land without the Romans. And so they're future as a Jewish people depended on them not associating with traitors who are tax collectors. So when Jesus says that, now I want to skip down to verse 20. This is, this is really interesting. It says, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Has anybody ever quoted that one thinking it had to do with praying together or worshiping together? We're having a beer together. I've heard guys go, yeah, we're two or three gathered, clink, you know. But here's the thing, <laughs> like, Jesus is actually talking about when you do the hard work of a family and when you are so broken by the, 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 the actions, the pattern, the, the, the sin in someone's life that they're actually bringing harm to themselves in the community, and when you confront them in prayer, and when you confront them in love, and when you pursue them at all these different avenues, and they still say no, and then you decide that it's time to cut them off from a relationship, Jesus says, I'm with you in that. That's very, very powerful. And you're probably in your mind running through all these scenarios and all these thoughts, but let me just, let me just, let me just jump ahead to 1 Corinthians. Let's read this story. And I want you to pull in these threads that Jesus, um, uh, that Jesus in, the, in the Old Testament have that Paul is using. It says this in verse one. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Remember, Corinth is this famous place in the empire for being loose sexually, that the Greek historian uh, Strabo actually said that there was a thousand temple prostitute, prostitutes on the loose in the city. That to say uh, you're very Corinthian was slang that you were a prostitute or that you were loose sexually, like how very Corinthian of you. Um, and, and we don't use that anymore, but I'm saying that's a slang uh, term. Now every culture has taboos, and even Corinth had taboos. Even Corinth had an honor-shame piece to it. See, incest in Corinth, so sex with a stepmom was actually illegal under Roman law, and the punishment was banishment on an island forever, okay? So, so let's, let's see where we're, Paul is talking to who? The church, believers, followers of Jesus. So this is really serious stuff because what Paul is saying is Rome is not okay with this, Corinth is not okay with this, but you are? Like, really? And he says in verse two, and you are proud, right? He's like, the problem, remember earlier, the problem in the church is pride. They're puffed up. They're all into this sophistry and like mixing things together. He's like, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning for the dead? Remember the tradition? And have you put your fellowship, the man, uh, sorry, and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Matthew 18. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment on the in the name of the Lord Jesus, okay? Remember, Jesus gathered with them, 1820. And he says, and on, on the one who has been doing this, so when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Alluding to Matthew 18, the next thing he says freaks us out. 
hand this man over to Satan. What is happening? Like, if you were just to parachute into this verse and read this one, there's different opinions about what's happening here, but when you read the next verses, what you're going to see is all of this is directed towards Passover imagery. All of this that Paul is weaving together these threads, he is alluding to the Passover, and he says basically to give him over and put him outside, outside of the covering, right, that we talked about in Exodus 12, outside of the covering, outside of the protection of Jesus. Inside is where Jesus reigns. Outside is the kingdom of darkness, okay? Is a world that is in mutiny, open rebellion against God. And so what Paul is saying is this is where he needs to go. So that, it says, the sinful nature may be destroyed. So the part of you, that part of you and me that is bent towards um, rebellion can be destroyed. The Bible calls it your flesh. Paul calls it, it's actually the word is sarks, which means like that part of you that is just in, in a default towards your own way, towards rebellion. And it's that part that you and I have tension with all the time. That the spirit, the things in our spirit that, that we know that, that God wants us to do and the spirit in us that wants us to do right and then there's that part of us that, that wants to go our own way and open rebellion and, and, our, and the, the, the joy of following Jesus is becoming more and more of a person that follows the spirit that, that tends to default out of habit that way. And it says, for the destruction of the flesh so that, so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, this is really crucial. For those of you who are listening to this and thinking, Paul is the biggest jerk, it's confirmed, you know? Paul is repackaging Matthew 18. Paul is reinterpreting through the Spirit what Jesus has already said. Now, this is really crucial. You gotta listen to this. The purpose of church discipline, listen. Like, if you haven't listened at all today, listen. Listen. The purpose of what we call church discipline is salvation, not punishment, okay? Punishment takes place on the cross. It's already happened. These are believers. These are followers of Jesus. Punishment has taken place. We are done with punishment. Always for the purposes of healing and, restor and restoration and redeeming is discipline. Always always and forever. It's kind of like shock therapy in a sense. And if you have been a part of a family who has had somebody who has uh, gotten involved in an addiction, okay? So uh, a family that has someone who is progressively going further and further into a, a drug addiction, what happens is at some point, after all the stealing and all the, the lying and all of the, the pain that a family goes through over and over and over and you've tried everything and you've tried to intervention after intervention and counseling and rehab and all these things. And still, the teenager or the young adult decides to continue. And you kick them out. And you say, we've had enough. We can't do this anymore. For the protection of our family, you have to leave. We have to say goodbye to you. There will be no more money. There will be no more coming back. You're on your own. And I've seen it happen. And it's painful. And it's, I mean, it's the worst day of your life as a family, and the goal is to wake them up. The goal is to wake them up and protect the family at the same, same time. First Corinthians 5 is not a story about a man living in sin. 
1 Corinthians 5 is the story of a church who is not dealing with a man living in sin. Does that make sense? And so notice the difference between those two. So he goes on, verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. You, don't you know that a little yeast, remember the Passover, leavens the whole batch of dough? And, and, and really, he's using yeast as a metaphor for sin here. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. All this imagery he's bringing in of the Passover and leaven and, and all these things are beautiful. See, for Paul, Jesus is the climax of the Passover. Jesus is uh, in his person without defect or sin, crucified at the exact moment that the Passover lamb would be crucified. And Jew Jewish people saw that and, and it gave that timing gave meaning to them. And because of that, because of this Passover lamb, because of the covering, okay, you need to be serious about the leaven in your community. You need to be serious about the leaven in your life. He says this, verse eight, therefore keep, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. <coughs> Folks, we celebrate the Passover every day in our lives, every day in our community, in this community. And he says, he, he, he writes a little later, he says, verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter, and there was a letter before this letter, we've been through that, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, he's clarifying, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. Here's, no, here's what he's saying. He's clarifying. Listen, I didn't tell you to not associate with anybody who is sexually immoral in this world. I told you not to associate with people who are sexually immoral among you. He's saying you need to be the biggest fans and love people outside of this community. People who are far from Jesus should be the biggest bullseye of love for you in this world. He's saying, just hear me out. Make room for people who are far from God. Make room for, no matter what. No matter what. Make room for them. Pursue them. Love them. Support them. Chase them down in love. Verse 11, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be, listen, claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Love that word, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Whoa. See, I think we get this so backwards, right? <laughs> like, we put up with a lot with each other. We don't really confront each other. Heck, half the time we really don't know each other well enough to confront each other. But somehow in the narrative of Christianity over the last 20 or 30 years, it's like, oh, let's create like this little enclave away from the world so we don't have to associate with anybody who's a swindler or sexually immoral but we put up with all kinds of that crap in churches all the time. And no wonder why nobody wants in, right? I mean, we have it backwards. We have it so backwards. And we think out there is dangerous and so bad and so sinful. And Paul says, no, no, no. The real danger is right here, okay? right here. What business, Paul says, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He's saying, it's none of my business to just cruise down the road. Eh, okay, whatever. You know, like standing, you remember that word judgment actually means to stand in condemnation of somebody. So when religious people get on Twitter and condemn people, that's actually, Paul says, yeah, we're not called to do that. 
FYI. See, American Christianity has been, we're world famous for this. Like, we're really good at it, at judging people outside the church. And listen, if you want to take your sandwich board sign, if you've got that thing all ready to go, like cocked and loaded, and you want to go picket somebody, go picket Bob, again, who's having sex with Susan and his, and his, 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 you know, marriage is crumbling. Like, go to Bob's house, and he's a believer, right? Go to Bob's house with your picket sign, because it says Jesus is with you. Kind of weird, but probably wouldn't be there, like, with the picket sign, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, like we picket people who don't know Jesus. Why? What business is mine to judge people outside the church, Paul says. And I'm going to ruffle a few feathers here, but this whole idea of a Christian nation, I just have to say this again. We never were that. And I know that bothers some of you when I say that, but Christian is not an adjective. It's a noun. And so when we say things are Christian, Christian nation, Christian music, Christian movies, it's not meant to be an adjective. We're actually meant to be nouns. Christians, okay, who follow Jesus in music, in acting, in, does that make sense? Okay, so when someone says, oh, we're a Christian nation, we need to get back to being a Christian nation, we never were. We were founded by deists who used Christian things to form some things in our government. And, and I just want you to understand that the sooner you get to that reality, it will actually propel you to mission instead of putting you in a bunker trying to stay away from people who are not followers of Jesus. Um, and that's my rant. Uh, so we're simply called to be Christians, loving those outside the family of God, but actually, Paul says, we're actually supposed to judge those inside the family of God. Kind of crazy, right? Matthew 7 is this verse that Jesus talks about, about not judging anybody. Remember that one? Sermon on the Mount, do not judge lest you too will be judged, blah, blah, blah. And he talks about the plank, remember the, the log in your eye and then the speck in somebody else's eye, remember that? Jesus is actually talking to religious hypocrisy of the day. People who are standing and they are judging people about their ability to keep Israel in check with what God wanted um, in order to get all the promises that God had offered. And so Paul, Jesus is actually talking to religious hypocrisy. Paul is actually talking to a group of people who are so wise and so progressive that they can boast about how they can still follow Jesus and allow Bob to have sex with his stepmom. They're so progressive and so tolerant. Paul is actually going after them. Jesus was actually going after religious hypocrisy. And so people take both of these passages to an extreme. Some people take Matthew 18 and they're like, man, I am got my radar out and I am looking for somebody to confront. And when I find, I hope it happens this week because I just love confrontation. If, if that's you, there are some great churches for you to go check out somewhere else, right? We, that's not what we're looking for. But most of us have the problem of not dealing with things in our lives and in other people's lives that really should, we should talk about. We should be in a kind of a relationship that says, hey, that's, you got to be careful. That is that's going to lead to this, and then, then this, and, and oh, I, your relationship with your wife is so sideways, and, and you, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you checking out these websites? What do you, we need to be after the, the love of each other. And let me just tell you where this buckles down for me. I'm going to be really honest about the history of our church really briefly. We started our church in 2011. I had a member of our staff that after our very first service, very first service, I mean, it was just like a miracle this thing even happened, right? After our very first service came to me and shared some things to me that should have disqualified him from being on staff. 
Should have. And out of my pride and my unwillingness to switch gears, I'm like, we've already started. We can just work on this on the side. And this person continued to keep leading and, and being on staff. And, and I'm the kind of leader that could probably work this person through and get them to grow and get them to change. And, and where their other leaders in their life couldn't have done that. And so this person kept leading, kept being one of the main faces of our church. And about 18 months later, because nothing was dealt with, because of my pride, this person's life blew up. Because of the choices they were making, because of the intentional, like the open, angry rebellion in their life, their family, his family blew up, relationships, now, at that point, we started some Matthew 18 work, like confrontation, things like that. We got other people involved in his life, other mentors in his life, all these things. And we were trying to work towards restoring this person back. And, and it just got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. To the point in November, I had a panic attack. We lost uh, a leadership team person because of just the, the mess this was. We lost another staff person because other things started coming to light. It was, if you're around, you know what I'm talking about. And there were people outside of our church that actually didn't think we were gonna make it. <laughs> because I had way too much pride. I had way too much pride. I thought, no, we can get through this. We're, we're not one of those churches that is like legalistic and we're just gonna harp on everything and, and we can get through this. And I hurt this church. Now, I, I wanna tell you that my relationship with this individual is still intact and there's been a lot of healing and a lot of growth, but what Paul is saying is something very, very serious. Now, I'm going to, three points as we're done. And these are very quick points because you're looking at your watches already. Some of you are asking, does this actually work? And I want to tell you over and over and over again, if you have the guts to obey, beautiful things can happen. You will read in 2 Corinthians that this situation, that this individual, most likely this individual, was restored. And it was a beautiful moment. And he was welcomed back. And change happened. And it was super painful. And it was super awkward. And it was super messy. And all of those things. But it happened. Three takeaways for the day. The first one is this. We're called to be a family. That's what this is. This is, this is a church. This, right now, this moment you're sitting in, this is not church. This is a gathering of people who are attending a church service. This is not church. In order for us to have church, we have to know each other. We have to be in relationship with you. We have to have familial relationship with each other. We have to know each other's weaknesses and strengths and giftings and past and struggles and hurts and all of those things so that we're locked in mission together. And if you don't feel that here, you're not alone. Trust me. But we want you to feel that. We want you to be known. We want you to know people. The second thing is this. We're not called just to be a family. We're called to be a family that is transformative. Meaning we are all going somewhere in our relationship with Jesus, in our becoming more like Jesus, in our apprenticing Jesus, we are going somewhere. We are moving. There's trajectory to it as a community, okay? Which means that we're all about each other's transformation. That's what we're about. Now, I hate this phrase, but I hear it all the time. 
God loves you just the way you are. Have you heard that before? Did you say it today? Because it's kind of true, but it's mostly not true. God does love you right where you're at, but God doesn't want you to stay there. Parenting little children is always fun. I used to have them. When Keelan was little, one day he decided this would be fun. I'm just going to start punching my sister in the face. Now, if I loved Keelan just the way he was, right? <laughs> he would still be punching his sister in the face. Does that make sense? We are on a journey to become more like Jesus. And the primary way that happens are the people sitting around you, are the people that you don't quite yet know yet, that, that they're here for you and me to interact with, to become more like Jesus. The third one is this, and this is where we're gonna end. Before you can call out the sin of sub somebody else, you have to deal with your own sin. You have to do a radical assessment of the leaven in your life. I'm not talking about, man, I screwed that up or a mistake here. I'm talking about deep patterns of intentional, habitual sin in your life. That if it was to come to light, would ruin your family, would ruin your job, would ruin your world, would ruin this community. I had to take a polygraph the other day for the Arvada PD chaplaincy. And they, they ask you deep, heavy things. And one of the questions they ask is just like a lot of job interviews you get is if anything came to light in your life, would it ruin the reputation of the Arvada Police Department? If anything came to light in your life, would it ruin the reputation of Jesus' followers? Would it ruin the reputation of this place, of this community, what we're trying to become? And, and the reason why I say that is because you were invited to a beautiful coming home. You were invited to that, to live this free, flourishing, full-on, open, honest, loving, chase-after-Jesus's-mission life. And you can't do that if you're living in hiding. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring the lights down a little bit. Elliot's going to come up, but we're not going to sing quite yet. We're actually going to give us a chance as a community to, to just reflect, to soul search, to do some honest work in our own hearts, in our own lives. What kind of people, what kind of a person, what, where is there leaven in your life? that needs to go to become the person that Jesus desperately wants you to be. So we'll just spend a couple minutes in silence, in prayer, reflecting on that before we take communion together.